Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Book 9, Chapter 15. What insight do we get on Tolstoy's feeling towards war in this chapter? How is this mirrored in the suggestion of war as being like hunting? How does the experience during this chapter seem to change Rostov? And what statement is being made through the awarding of the St. George Cross to Rostov following the incident? It's not the first time that we've seen Rostov in action, in war, and he's likened the feeling to something kind of from his home uh, setting. Um, Earlier in the book, he's being chased by, uh, well, by people trying to kill him. And he likens the feeling of sprinting away from them um, as like playing chase at home. You know, the thrill of someone trying to tag you in a game of tag. So, uh, it's, yeah, it was interesting to see him do another similar comparison where, um, you know, the feeling of charging at the enemy this time was like charging at uh, a hunted prey animal when on a hunt. And uh, it does seem like in both cases he uses this to his advantage. In the earlier chapter, he sprints away and he's so nimble, he gets away. You know, he outruns all of the people chasing him uh, and also accidentally leads them towards uh, some hidden sharpshooters. So he did a real good job. Uh, And then in this chapter, he basically leads a charge and goes and captures a bunch of French people, gets himself a St. George Cross. Real good effort. Rahul the Invader says, I'm really loving these chapters. There is a sense of intensity in Tolstoy's writing that you feel in the war chapters when contrasted with the peace chapters. Rostov's instincts have really gotten better as a soldier as he was able to determine the right moment to attack, didn't really have to wait for the affirmation of his superior. Everything after that feels like an adrenaline rush. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well said. I feel that Rostov's catharsis ends the moment he wounds the French soldier, That's where the gruesome reality of war sets in and the cost of taking a life of a person takes over. I feel it's that morality that monumentally shifts Rostov's emotions from an emotionally charged to a depressed soul uh, and quiet soul. Yeah, he does just really like flop, doesn't he? His spirits are soaring and then as soon as he strikes at an enemy, and it's maybe the first time he's ever struck an enemy despite the fact he's been active in all these wars this is the first time he's actually reached someone and you know been able to hit them with his saber Uh, and he doesn't like the feeling and he doesn't like the fact that when he looks at the person he's attacking they don't look like an enemy they just look like a person to him Um, home home like I think it was the word or something like that um Twisted Every Way said this chapter was much more interesting to me. I loved hearing Nikolai's thoughts. He really didn't even know what he was doing. He was just following instincts as he chased his prey. Then his realization that everyone else is just as or more afraid and that for slightly injuring the enemy soldier, he gets a medal while he feels something like shame. Fragrance Skrill 99 says, We are seeing Rostov's character develop so much in these last chapters. He is way more courageous and wise. We see the adrenaline kick in and his courageous efforts, but also his humanity and conscience when he realizes what he's about to do. I'm liking this character more and more. 
Yeah. Oh, that's good. Nicholas is a great character. Uh, Pythagorean Bean says, Rostov's experience in this chapter is mirroring what happened to him earlier in the book. Who would want to kill me? Everyone loves Nikolai. It turns into, why would I want to kill this kid? He has done nothing wrong. Great callback. And I've even called back to that exact same scene in this chapter, uh, in this podcast, just a minute ago. And without actually drawing that same comparison as you have, Pythagorean Bean. So, um, yeah, I didn't even think of that. But you're right, it does mirror it. Earlier on, he was the prey and thinking, why would anyone want to hurt me? I'm just a normal guy. And now he's the hunter. And when he finds his prey, it turns out, hey, look at that. They're just a normal guy. And he doesn't want to hunt them anymore. Um, I read or heard or someone told me at some point about like some statistic about how many shots during the war were intentionally missed. And when you had a whole line of soldiers firing their guns at a whole opposing line of soldiers, that a, a decent percentage of those soldiers were intentionally aiming up to not actually, because they didn't actually want to shoot the enemy opposite them, which um, is a startling fact if it's true. Uh, but interesting nonetheless, and I bet, you know, who knows what that percentage is, but there would be some people who would, even when it's sort of them or you, they would still not want to aim their gun at someone else and shoot. Chapter 16 goes like this. On receiving news of Natasha's illness, the Countess, though not quite well yet and still weak, went to Moscow with Petya and the rest of the household, and the whole family moved from Maya Dmitrievna's house to their own and settled down in town. Natasha's illness was so serious that, fortunately for her and her parents, the consideration of all that had caused the illness, her conduct and the breaking off of her engagement, receded into the background. She was so ill that it was impossible for them to consider in how far she was to blame for what had happened. She could not eat or sleep, grew visibly thinner, coughed, and as the doctors made them feel was in danger, they could not think of anything but how to help her. Doctors came to see her singly and in consultation, talked much in French, German and Latin, blamed one another, and prescribed a great variety of medicines for all the diseases known to them, but the simple idea never occurred to any of them that they could not know the disease Natasha was suffering from, as no disease suffered by a live man can be known, for every living person has his own peculiarities, and always has his own peculiar, personal, novel, complicated disease, unknown to medicine, not a disease of the lungs, liver, skin, heart, nerves, and so on, mentioned in medical books, but a disease consisting of one of the innumerable combinations of the maladies of those organs. This simple thought could not occur to the doctors, as it cannot occur to a wizard that he is unable to work his charms, because the business of their lives was to cure, and they received money for it, and had spent the best years of their lives on that business. But above all, that thought was kept out of their minds by the fact that they saw they were really useful, as in fact that they were the whole Rostov family. Their usefulness did not depend on making the patient swallow substances for the most part harmful, the harm was scarcely perceptible, as they were given in small doses, 
but they were useful, necessary and indispensable because they satisfied a mental need of the invalid and of those who loved her. And that is why there are, and always will be, pseudo-healers, wise women, homeopaths and allopaths. They satisfy that eternal need for hope, of relief, for sympathy, and that something should be done, which is felt by those who are suffering. They satisfied the need seen in its most elementary form in a child when it wants to have a place rubbed that has been hurt. A child knocks itself and runs at once to the arms of its mother or nurse to have the aching spot rubbed or kissed, and it feels better when this is done. The child cannot believe that the strongest and wisest of its people have no remedy for its pain, and the hope of relief and the expression of its mother's sympathy while she rubs the bump comforts it. Doctors were of use to Natasha because they kissed and rubbed her bump, assuring her that it would soon pass if only the coachman went to the chemists in the Arbat and got a powder that, and some pills in a pretty box for a rouble and seventy kopecks, and if she took those powders in boiled water at intervals of precisely two hours, neither more nor less. What would Sonia and the Count and Countess have done how would they have looked if nothing had been done, if there had not been those pills to give by the clock, the warm drinks, the chicken cutlets, and all the other details of life ordered by the doctors, the carrying out of which supplied an occupation and consolation to the family circle? How would the Count have borne his dearly loved daughter's illness had he not known that it was costing him a thousand roubles, and that he would not grudge thousands more to benefit her, or had he not known that if her illness continued he would not grudge he sorry and he would not grudge yet other thousands and would take her abroad for consultations there and had he been able to explain the details of how Mativia and Fella had not understood the symptoms but Fries had and Mudrov had diagnosed them even better what would the countess have done had she not been able sometimes to scold the invalid for not strictly obeying the doctor's orders? You will never get well like that, she would say, forgetting her grief in her vexation. If you won't obey the doctor and take your medicine at the right time, you mustn't trifle with it, you know, or it may turn pin uh, pneumonia. She would go on deriving much comfort from the utterances of that foreign word, incomprehensible to others as well as to herself. What would Sonia have done without the glad consciousness that she had not undressed during the first three nights, in order to be ready to carry out all the doctor's injunctions, with precision that she still kept awake at night, so as not to miss the proper time when the slightly harmful pills in the little gilt box had to be administered? Even to Natasha herself it was pleasant to see that so many sacrifices were being made for her sake, and to know that she had to take her medicine at certain hours, though she declared that no medicine would cure her and that it was all nonsense. And it was even pleasant to be able to show by disregarding the orders that she did not believe in medical treatment and did not value her life. The doctor came every day, felt her pulse, looked at her tongue, and regardless of her grief-stricken face, joked with her. But when he had gone into another room, to which the countess hurriedly followed him, he assumed a grave air and thoughtfully, shaking his head, said that though there was danger, he had hopes of the effects of his last medicine 
and one must wait and see. That the malady was chiefly mental, but, and the Countess, trying to conceal the action from herself and from him, slipped a gold coin into his hand and always returned to the patient with a more tranquil mind. The symptoms of Natasha's illness were that she ate little, slept little, coughed, and was always low-spirited. The doctors said that she could not get on without medical treatment. So they kept her in the stifling atmosphere of the town, and the Rostovs did not move to the country that summer of 1812. In spite of the many pills she swallowed and the drops and powders out of the little bottles and boxes of which Madame Schoss, who was fond of such things, made a large collection, and in spite of being deprived of the country life to which she was accustomed, youth prevailed. Natasha's grief began to be overlaid by the impressions of daily life. It ceased to press so painfully on her heart. It gradually faded into the past and she began to recover physically. <coughs> physically. Sorry, the very last word of the chapter and I lost my voice. <laughs> Alright guys, there's another chapter for you. Have your say on the subreddit and I'll see you tomorrow.